This episode includes my archive works on uh, the Twin Peaks pilot, videos, podcasts, and uh, essays that I've written in the past. There's also a section called Shape of the Show, where I will discuss, as I said, the shape of the show, just the uh, the idea of how the whole overall structure of it works, what people think about different sections and so forth. Nothing spoilery, but if you want to fly totally blind and have no idea what you're in for, you may want to skip it. So, The only part of this episode that does contain any spoiler is the very last uh, few minutes. There'll be fair warning before I'm going to preview the next episode by playing the opening minute and describing what we see and i'll end every week that way playing the opening minute of the next episode setting us up talking about what's on screen and then we will begin our new week on the following saturday i'll give that fair warning i want to read some of my past work on this episode uh, how i kind of reacted to it at various times in various contexts and of course these are all non-spoiler spoiler as well in 2008, I watched the series for the first time and then went back to and revisited it. And on my second viewing, I wrote an episode guide for many of the episodes. Here's what I wrote about the pilot. This was, I think, the third time that I'd watched it. Again, the shocking rumor of Laura's death whispers its way into the school like the breeze in those trees. A couple cops striding through the background. Laura's boyfriend called to the office. A word exchanged with the teacher, whose face drops, just as a random girl runs screaming through the schoolyard. Much of this is taken in through the eyes of Laura's best friend Donna, who glances at Laura's empty seat, turns fearfully to James, and grabs her wrist with a pained expression. Here, as elsewhere, Lynch finds exactly the right gesture to convey the turmoil that's about to break forth, although James snapping his pencil in half touches down just this side of camp, which was probably intentional. Meanwhile, the police confront Bobby with Laura's death and then arrest him in the show's longest sequence yet, an unbroken shot filmed with a subtly dollying, pushing, and tilting camera which reframes as the scene develops the characters' relationships and reactions to one another going through mercurial shifts. The whole thing lasts nearly two minutes, and then the first act of Twin Peaks wraps itself up when the principal, voice cracking, makes an announcement over the intercom, the first public pronouncement before shutting off the microphone and weeping. Throughout this first half hour, Lynch has briefly focused our attention on objects in a rare interruption of the fluid, straightforward camera work and editing. There was the foreboding ceiling fan, the phone hanging off the receiver as Laura's mother cries out over the line, Audrey's black-tipped shoes when she gets into the family limo, even the scissors, though not in close-up, that Bobby's mother plays with as she speaks on the phone. Six years later, in 2014, I created the Eye of the Duck essay where I talk about all the different Lynch films and episodes. For the pilot, I wrote, This sexy mysteriousness reappears in the opening of Lynch's TV pilot, Twin Peaks, 1990, focusing on sleek, otherworldly black dog figurines before panning up to an Asian woman, Joan Chen, applying makeup in her mirror. Who is she? Why is she in the small backwoods town? Where did the eerie dogs come from? Why do we feel so ill at ease already, mere seconds into this unfamiliar series? A middle-aged man, Jack Nance, of course, picks up his fishing pole and heads out to the pebbly beach along the lake where the lonesome foghorn blows and a massive sequoia log shelters a dead girl, wrapped in plastic. It is homecoming queen Laura Palmer, Cheryl Lee, 17, still beautiful in death. The mystery has begun. My journey through Twin Peaks video series is my most popular way 
of uh, people exploring my thoughts about Twin Peaks. And in the coverage of the pilot episode, I talk a little bit about the town and the impression it creates interwoven with clips from the series. The whole thing, of course, as a video essay, it's not me talking to the screen. It's uh, a a written and recorded narration laid out over clips that are edited together to express various points. It all makes some kind of terrible sense that she died. That someone killed her. I don't know. I can't explain it. Next, we meet the town of Twin Peaks. We catch a few glimpses before Laura's body is discovered, but for the most part her death will provide our passage into this eccentric, absorbing small town, filling those empty landscapes we saw in the opening credits. Twin Peaks is a place and a people. The place is buried deep in Washington State, land of Douglas firs, night owls, and still waters that run deep. The people run the gamut, a stable of wacky and sturdy, lovable and loathsome, sultry and salty personalities. They all have secrets, and are connected to one another in a tangled web, often involving sexual intrigue. Initially, at least, the whole town seems suspicious. Around the time that I originally recorded this episode, I also went on Twin Peaks Unwrapped, another podcast that went for six years from 2015 to 2021, and they held community rewatches where they would watch episodes. They would have people performing reenactments of deleted scenes from the script. A lot of fun. Uh, This episode mostly contains uh, spoilers, but I'll include a clip here, which does not. So you can hear a little bit of our discussion uh, from uh, spring of 2018. In this part, we talk about the fact that in the original script, there were supposed to be reporters crawling all around the town, covering the story, and they took that out of the pilot, but we do get that one newscast with Shelley, and it's actually Mark Frost's voice providing uh, the announcer's voice as she's watching Renette's picture on the news. So we address that here. And that probably, you know, that speaks to the to the same same thing. I, they needed to do some little reporter bit for the TV that Shelley's watching. And they're not going to hire an extra or another speaking role. So they just had Mark Frost do it. Yeah, they just said, right. Mark, get in front of the camera. We're going to do this real quick because we need that. Um, they weren't about to go find actors or extras for, for that. No. I think that's true, but also... The reporters in general and the fact that he plays one just feels like such a Mark Frostian thing because (laughs) I think he's so much more interested in Lynch in like media and just society. I mean, he the difference between Lynch and him to me is he is super interested in society and like history and context and how people interact with one another. That to me is is Mark Frost. The reporters just feel like something that he would have very much had in mind. Like how is the town, you know, reacting to kind of the outside world coming in and how is the outside world see this town and just those various perspectives. Sheriff, what can you tell us? Nothing for you folks at this time. No comment. Finally, in 2016, I participated in a Reddit uh, Twin Peaks watch through with a lot of first time viewers. And I wrote some non spoiler responses to each episode and then also linked to my previous pieces as I'm doing now. And at the end of that first write up for the pilot, which was shorter than most of them, I posed some questions for new viewers, which I'm going to repeat here for anybody listening. The questions are Is this what you expected? What surprised you? Do you feel enthusiastic and committed about the show already? What, if anything, gives you reservations? 
based just on the pilot, how would you describe Twin Peaks in a few lines? Do you think it can be described in a few lines? What are you anticipating going forward in terms of style, story, quality, or anything else? Who is your favorite character? Your least favorite character? Why? Are you intrigued by the mystery of Laura Palmer? Do you care who did it, or are you more interested in other aspects of the show? Do you have any primary suspects? How do you feel about the music, the performances, or the style of the show? Does it play to you like a soap opera, a parody, something in between? If you weren't hooked by the opening credits, but were by the end, what was it that grabbed you? So at this point, we're going to pause, and I'm going to uh, issue a soft warning. We're not headed into spoiler territory yet, but we are in an area that I'm going to call the shape of the show. No plot details will be revealed, but I'm going to address what people think about the quality of it, if it's disturbing or not, and things like that. You know, stuff that if you feel like you can handle wherever Twin Peaks is going to go, um, then don't listen. <laughs> if, but on the other hand, if you kind of like to have an idea of where you're headed, not necessarily, um, you know, maybe because you're going to decide it's not for you, but also even just so you're like you're ready for it, then keep listening. And we're going to talk about um, a little bit of that. Okay, let's address these questions. First of all, the show's balance between darkness and light. Secondly, the quality. And third, the narrative thrust. The reason I bring up the show's balance between darkness and light is there is definitely some very disturbing content on this show. Uh, you can get hints of it in the pilot, but it does get darker at certain points. I think there's other parts where it gets really lighter, and that's kind of the significance of it is most shows you can get a sense of, okay, where is the show going to take me? Is it going to take me to somewhere... You know, do I need to be emotionally prepared for this to go get really, you know, dark and disturbing? And there's times where Twin Peaks seems to be telling you no, that, you know, it's spooky, but it's ultimately going to stay at a certain level. Think of that quote where Lynch says, you know, the fingernail is just on this side of the line that I read from the, the media piece earlier. Well, that changes. <laughs> Lynch goes over that line, in my opinion. And it's valuable to the work. I think it makes it more powerful. But I think it's fair for people to want to know that ahead of time. Uh, if you want to just go on that emotional roller coaster, great. But yeah, do be warned that the series goes some dark dark places. And it's not just a fun whodunit that it sometimes makes itself out to be. So it's a little bit sneaky in that regard. And that's part of the power of it. And I don't think at all times Lynch and Frost even knew where they were going with things. But uh you know, there's a lot of content that, you know, obviously already we've seen just in the pilot that sexual abuse is a part of this, sexual assault, and that those themes continue to play throughout um, emotional trauma and distress and depression and all of these, you know, Laura being a troubled girl is a, a feature of this uh, going forward big time. As far as the quality question goes, uh... That's obviously subjective, but there seems to be a general consensus that the second half of the show has a noticeable dip in quality from the first. And that's related to what we'll get to in a second, which is the narrative thrust of the series. But uh, for now, we can just say that the, uh, the second season has a bad rap, but really it's not the whole second season the first third of it although there are some beginnings of some flaws and some sort of troubling indications of what's to come for the most part it's still pretty strong it's really only in the uh, at the halfway point of the whole series 
And keep in mind, the first season is a lot shorter than the second. So that halfway point comes uh, about uh, eight episodes, eight or nine episodes into the second season. At that point, yeah, it uh, it gets pretty goofy. It goes in a tonally very different direction. The plot lines start to kind of sag, and it's a little aimless for a while. And really, the majority of first-time viewers don't like this part, and many often bail. I advise stay with it the whole way. Uh, the end of the series is extremely strong. Um, in fact, I can say at this point, the finale is my favorite episode of Twin Peaks, uh, at least of the first two seasons. So, you know, that it's it's worth the wait. And uh, there's some fun stuff that some people find sort of a camp value in it in this part of the series. But yes, it does take a turn. And the reason for that is largely because of the question of the narrative thrust. Does Twin Peaks answer the question of who killed Laura Palmer? Yes, it does halfway through the series, uh, about eight episodes, seven or eight episodes into season two. And this was advertised at the time, so it's not, you know, a spoiler to say going into it. Um, at least by the time of the second season, they were saying, listen, the reveal's coming up. It's coming up. Here it is. It's tonight. We're going to find out tonight who it is, etc." Once that's resolved, the series really doesn't have much of a place to go. They try to make it more about other things. And, uh, you know, it's just this pilot, as you can see, it sets it up as being the story of Laura Promise. Now, they do find their way out of that morass, in the, especially near the end of the season and especially in that last episode. And, of course, then they made a movie and then they came back 25 years later with, in my opinion, a really strong season of television. So there's new directions that spring out of that malaise, but there is a malaise for a while, for sure. And here's an excerpt from uh, the Dugpa fan forum where I asked fans their memories of first watching the show. This gets a little bit into how people think about the ups and downs of the series, so I thought I'd include it here in the shape of the show rather than the main section. Ross responded, I will mention before I get into this, though, that I don't have many of the same criticisms that others have about the show. I love the whole run, then and now. Sure, there are things that I can change, but nothing I hate, so I'm guessing I might offer a different perspective on some things. Uh, this media piece I decided to save because it does mention the idea that Linterfrost had a killer in mind, and I know some people may just want to not know if the killer's going to eventually be revealed or if they are planning to reveal it or anything, but obviously at this point, I've already let that cat out of the bag. When Blue Velvet Meets Hill Street Blues by Richard B. Woodward, New York Times, April 8, 1990. We started with this image of a body washing up on a lake, says Mr. Frost. It took us a while to solve the murder. We had to know the town before we could make up a list of suspects. Only after we knew most of its people was the killer revealed to us. I was going to include analysis of the alternate ending as part of the pilot, the European version that they shot for foreign markets. I'm going to include that in a later episode when I think it becomes more relevant. And you could almost see this as an extended version of what we see in that episode that's sort of canonical in that sense, that we're not seeing all the aspects of, of it. Um, the context it's presented in well, I guess I can just say at this point is, is you know, we're in the, the semi-spoiler safe zone. Uh, it's a dream sequence in the series. Here it's presented straight up as something that happens. <laughs> so uh, we'll deal with that when we get to it in an upcoming episode. This is already, there's so much going on in this pilot that I think we can save that for an, safely save that for another occasion. I want to talk a little bit about the Log Lady introduction. The Log Lady introductions were written by David Lynch and recorded with the character of the Log Lady, just speaking these sort of cryptic uh, introductions to each episode. And they was aired on Bravo in 1993 when the series was being rerun. 
So as such, it kind of reflects a later view back on the series. In this Log Lady introduction, it's probably my favorite of the series. Uh, she's, she opens, part of what she says is, it's the story of many, but it begins with one, and I knew her. The one leading to the many is Laura Palmer. Laura is the one. She also says it is beyond the fire, though few would know that meaning. And the reason I'm saving this for the semi-spoiler section without getting too specific about major plot deals is that it feels like a very much a post-Fire Walk With Me uh, introduction now. Fire Walk With Me is the name of the feature film that followed Twin Peaks. I think that Lynch, if he had not gone in the directions he went with in after the series, would not have um, set up these introductions the way he did. And I think part of their whole purpose is to tie Twin Peaks together as like a cohesive entity. And while it was being made, it was much more chaotic than that. You know, there was different things pulling and pushing at it. Lynch himself was not heavily involved for a while. And uh, I think that sense of cohesion just wasn't there. So he had to come back to it after this time had passed and after the things he did at the end of the series and with the film and kind of go back and frame Twin Peaks in retrospect. In 2015... I wrote a piece for Tumblr. I did a ranking of the episodes, and I called it Twin Peaks Out of Order. I ranked this episode number six out of the whole series, out of 30 episodes. And here's what I wrote. The pilot certainly deserves to be called one of the best episodes of Twin Peaks. Arguably, it's most perfectly constructed and executed. A good case can be made for ranking it, bare minimum, in the top three. But this is a favorites list, and I admire the pilot much more than I am moved by it. My enjoyment is detached, cerebral, especially during the first third, devoted almost entirely to the town receiving the news of Laura's death. While I consider Laura Palmer one of the greatest characters in fiction, and the film devoted to her life an absolutely devastating piece of cinema, these early scenes in Twin Peaks do not really reach me on an emotional level, an occasional exception being Donna's reaction to the girl who runs screaming across the courtyard. I always breathe a big sigh of relief when Cooper arrives to lighten the mood and move the investigation forward. I've also noticed a bit of a generation gap when it comes to this episode. Younger viewers tend to be a bit alienated or confused by the soap operatic intensity of the music and performers, wondering if they are supposed to feel weird or if these stylistic tics are relics of an earlier era. Older viewers remember how radical this pilot appeared in the context of network television in 1990, noticing the realistic touches while also appreciating how the air of slight exaggeration makes it purposefully surreal. Perhaps for these reasons, and the different methods of viewing, original viewers seem more likely to rank it as a high watermark that the series never or only occasionally reached again, whereas first-time viewers in 2015 often regard this as a memorable introduction, which hasn't quite hit its stride yet. So in that, I kind of touch on something, which I guess I'll mention here, it's sort of a semi-spoiler, but one that people usually discuss pretty openly. It's not a plot detail. Uh, but yes, the film Firewalk With Me is a prequel. It's about Laura Palmer. And uh, so that's that's something that uh, usually it's a good thing to know before you watch the movie so you're not like flabbergasted about its subject matter. And certainly that was heavily advertised at the time. It was not like a secret when people went into the theater what it was about. But at the time, the pilot, you know, that was far in the future. Laura Lucy, Nadine, Major Briggs, Renette, Julie Cruz, The Log Lady, and The One-Armed Man are all buried in the credits. I mentioned that earlier, but I wanted to list them all by name because it's really amazing that they're way back in the end credits, along with people who some of whom aren't even in the pilot, like they were cut, but their name's still in it. I alluded to this 
in the uh, main body of the, the episode, but it's worth reiterating here now that we can kind of talk about it more openly. The home movie is the moment that Cheryl Lee became a Twin Peaks fixture. That's when Frost and Lynch decided there was more here for that character. I'm going to play a little quick clip from Journey Through Twin Peaks, which is meant to sort of illustrate that. And then over that montage of Laura's face appearing on the TV, I print the Lynch quote that says, I was in love with the character of Laura Palmer and her contradictions, radiant on the surface but dying inside. I wanted to see her live, move, and talk. And I think I'd like to end on that clip as well. So thank you for listening, and here's our last reflections uh, stemming from the pilot and the creation of it. See you next time. In Seattle, Lynch and Frost decided to hire locally for the small part of Laura Palmer's body. They chose an inexperienced theater actress and shot all of her scenes, mostly as a corpse, in a few days before moving on. Only later, watching some home video footage of a picnic to be used as evidence in the pilot episode, did Lynch and Frost see something more. Quite unexpectedly, the bit player had brought the dead girl back to life. For the first time, Laura Palmer was real. Things are interesting to you, and... Uh... You sort of have to uh, find out about them. And I think uh, sometimes people have a, they don't want to take a chance and go into a darkness to discover what it is. And I like, you know, to do that. And that's it for the pilot. Let's now preview episode one, as it's known. The pilot is supposedly episode zero. The next episode of the series, playing the first minute and then I will discuss what we see as a segue into tomorrow kicking off that part of the podcast. To set the mood, let's listen to the first minute of the episode, featuring some jaunty music and a little bit of dialogue. And then we'll briefly describe, in depth, the details of the world on screen during this first minute. a.m., room 315, Great Northern Hotel up here in Twin Peaks. Slept pretty well. Non-smoking room, there's no tobacco smell. That's a nice consideration for the business traveler. A hint of Douglas fir needles in the air. As Sheriff Truman indicated they would, everything this hotel promised, they've delivered. Clean, reasonably priced accommodations. Telephone works, bathroom in really tip-top shape. The first things we see are a wide shot of Whitetail Falls in the Great Northern Hotel at an early morning hour. The lights are still glowing from the night before, even though it's past dawn. We cut to inside the hotel, in FBI agent Dale Cooper's room 315. On a bedside table, in a moderate close-up, we see a lamp, the light still turned on, with an old built-in clock that no longer works in its base. A service revolver in its holster, with six bullets standing and a speed loader right next to it. An FBI badge rests on top of an old-fashioned hardcover book, Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. A working alarm clock sits behind the book, and we can just glimpse the edge of a black telephone. The camera tilts and pans up and to the left, 
past the varnished barked bedpost and the rough, unfinished cross plank over which the opening credits begin to unfold. Continuing past the knotted wood walls, the camera reveals a darker brown mount in which the black hooves and white-furred lower legs of an animal, probably a deer, are bent to serve as the rack for a hunting rifle. Past this display, the camera tilts and pans down and to the right, catching another lamp, this in the form of a wall-mounted faux candle holder, with the bulb shaped like flames, and a small mount, which looks brass but may be cheaper, is ornately detailed. Panning now as sharply as it is tilting, the camera reveals another bedside tabletop. This one displays a mock, grayish-looking duck, probably wooden, designed in a typical swimming position with the wings folded and legs underneath and a stuffed game bird, most likely a ring-necked pheasant, who has been posed standing on what appears to be a small black stone stand. When we hear a tape recorder click, the camera is tilting up again, continuing its never-halted leftward pan past a framed canvas, featuring a pastoral scene of two banks of a small creek or river, with a small bit of meadow on either side and a wooded area surrounding it, and a home with a barn a bit further down the horizon. The impression is somewhat indistinct, possibly thanks to the low exposure of the photography and the orangish tint to the color correction. Fixed across this canvas, at parabolic intervals, guiding the lens's arc, are three three-dimensional birds. They too appear to be ringneck pheasants, crafted from some shiny painted material, perhaps ceramic. As the camera continues to rise and tightly survey the hotel room's decoration, we see a fish, probably a fake one loosely modeled on a rock bass, mounted on a typical round backing, more heavily grained than the wall behind it. Finally, the camera completes its upward tilt as the wall ends and a horizontal blackish metal bar is revealed across the top of the frame, somewhat rusted and old, some sort of piping for water perhaps exposed near the sailing and now utilized by Agent Cooper to secure the hooks on the metal attachments to his boots, by which he's hanging upside down. The final opening credit fades away as both boots emerge in the frame. The camera finally completes its long pan, but continues to move, tilting down past the yellow and maroon garters attached to his black socks, down his bare legs to his knees. And here, dear viewers, our one-minute journey comes to an end. That's it. See you tomorrow for more of episode one.